Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have a guest from the state of Indiana, Nicholas Barros. He is a graduate of the Cayetano Heredia University in Lima, Peru, assistant professor of clinical medicine at University of Indiana, and medical director of transplant infectious disease. We'll start with, did I get your institution right? Is it University of Indiana or Indiana University? Indiana University. All right. So that was the first fail on my part. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about yourself. So, well, I'm originally uh, from Peru. I grew up in a beach town in the north of Peru, but then I moved to Lima and I did my medical school there. And I graduated in 2010. So I got a plenty of exposure to infectious diseases, especially mainly tropical infectious diseases mm-hmm. at the um, Tropical Medicine Institute. And that's kind of how I got involved in, in infectious diseases even early on during my med school. And we all have to do a medical thesis to graduate from, from our institution. So I initially started working on immunology to HTLV-1. Mm-hmm. If we have a fairly large cluster of HTLV-1 in, in Peru for migration issues and kind of very unique uh, background of Peru. But the interesting part about HTLV-1 is that it can have such a huge array of presentations from autoimmune diseases like a tropical spastic paraparesis to auto, like completely immunosuppressive status like uh, hyperinfection syndrome from strongyloides tercoralis. And kind of right in the middle, you have a huge chunk of patients, 95% to 96% that don't have any symptom whatsoever. And kind of as a variant, you also have patients with acute myeloid, or acute T-cell uh, leukemia lymphoma. So that kind of like was really fascinating and kind of to, it really encompasses the uh, array of diseases that the Casadabal like nice draw in of hyper responses and mm-hmm. responses mm-hmm. work. And so we started checking on the, the ratios of Th1 and Tregs in, in this population. And, and of course, we found out that the patients that um, had autoimmune diseases have a higher uh, ratio of Th1 cells and, than regulatory T cells. And when you see the patients with hyperinfection syndrome, it's the complete all the way around. They have far more regulatory T cells than Th1 cells. And it was actually quite fascinating as we start seeing some of the cases on patients that when we saw the analysis of the flow cytometry, some of them started having like a clonal expansion of regulatory T cells mm-hmm. by flow. And two of these cases actually were fascinating because we, we saw the flow cytometry and it was like, well, this is absolutely not normal. But the patients were in their house, not having mm-hmm. any symptoms. So we called, I called the provider of the patients, hey, your patient has a clonal expansion of Tregs. And so they called him back and the patient had ATL. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a couple of weeks later, it became florid. Well, exactly. The patient died, but both of them, but it's still kind of interesting presentation of disease. And, and the point is like, well, after working with this, I stayed in that lab and the person that was my, my mentor for my medical thesis became my mentor in career and one of my closest friends so far still. And his main area of research is strongyloidiasis, which we do have also a pretty good amount in Peru. Mm-hmm. So we started working in strongyloides, not only in HTLV-1, but in general, 
and how did they expand? Why did they remain so asymptomatic in in, a, in the population? You can have strongulitis for decades, and you're never going to know until somebody gives you a large amount of medications that tackle your granulocyte function, and then you're going to have a disseminated disease. And so what we found is actually the patients that have strongyloides tend to have a higher proportion of regulatory T cells in their circulating blood. And there is data from animal models that actually um, strongyloides tercoralis actually expands regulatory T cells by their excretory proteins. And when mm-hmm. we checked in duodenal biopsies of patients, you can see that the areas that are surrounding the pathogen tend to have more regulatory T cells at areas that are not surrounding the pathogen. And even though that there's a good amount of immunoglobulins E and surrounding all the area, actually the areas that are close to the parasite don't have that pattern. So it is possible or likely, I would say, that the pathogen is actually kind of coding itself and expanding the regulatory T cells to protect itself, which is kind of a fascinating topic. Sort of feeds into the uh, hygiene hypothesis of allergic reactions that maybe we evolved to be to have strongyloides. I wouldn't be surprised, you know. And in fact, a lot of these antigens do have a good response to, like they they do shift a lot of the like a immune system in our gut, so they may have a fairly systemic responses. So I wouldn't be surprised if if that theory still holds to a certain extent. Of course, there's more variables, but I think that may play a pivotal role. But we also weren't evolved to uh, live to be uh, 80, 90, and hopefully have... Uh, so So th- these are good things that we're doing in terms of treating end-stage kidney disease with transplantation, et, et cetera. True, true. So, but, you know, I, I worked in the lab for three years, in, but my clinical part was always... Missing when I was in the lab, you know, I still mm-hmm. saw the, this flow cytometry, and I wanted to call the patient, even though that I, of course I couldn't, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that part, I that was still something that I wanted to pursue, and so for that reason, I moved to the U.S. and and I started doing my residency in. I did my residency at UT Southwestern, which is a, a phenomenal place to to train and to to work. I I cherish all my my days there. And I got exposed to a tremendous amount of infectious diseases, and we have a, a large amount of migrant population. So we do have a good array of stuff that it's not as common in the northern parts of the, the United States. And I, at that point, was more involved in HIV and because of the immunological aspect of, of my, my interests. But, you know, HIV, it, we have great medications for it. So mm-hmm. you start treating them and all the immunological issues for the most part, or at least the large clinical presentations of it will dissipate and Mm -hmm. patients will go on their lives and you are left dealing with chronic medical conditions. And at that point, and I didn't have much exposure to transplant in Peru, I started working with the infectious diseases department at, at UT Southwestern. And with one of my mentors there, Dr. Lajos. And so we started working with him and it was quite fascinating to see all this immunological pathways being altered. And this is exactly what I used to love and kind of like dissecting and understanding how if you move one versus the other, you start having different presentations. 
So as, as someone that saw this, con- like in my mind, the continuous battle between the microbiome and the immunological aspects of a human and this in-between battle, but love and hate each other. And, and so that was so present in transplant infectious diseases mm-hmm. that it mm-hmm. just became absolutely a passion of mine. And so for that reason, I decided to dedicate my life to transplant ID. And during that time, we were working on infectious disease and in invasive fungal diseases that we were having in heart transplant recipients, mm-hmm. which we do have a large population in Dallas. And then I moved to to MGH in Boston to actually do my my transplant infectious diseases training per se. And I I got trained by Jay Fishman and Camille Cotton, with which I I can only speak phenomenal things of them because they are great mentors, but not only great teachers and mentors in medicine, but every single time they will ask me how I am and they still wow. check in once in a while. It's like, hey, Nico, how are you doing? And that would truly tells you a little bit of how great mentors, not only in career, but in life are. That They call you once in a while to check in and see how you're doing. Fantastic. So that's where uh, I got involved with this two uh, Najum cases. So the first one... So for the listeners, he's referring to New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, I'm sorry to interrupted you. And it's, it's always been a joy of mine since I was a medical student to read the uh, clinical pathological exercises for the New England Journal of Medicine and see how the cases play out and it, sometimes and, and see the different styles. Sometimes the discussant romances the question and sort of builds up and builds up and then gives you the answer. Sometimes they go right for the jugular. And I have been curious about the people that are chosen as discussants. And I saw that Dr. Barros not once, but twice was a discussant, which seems like a uh, Herculean feat, especially considering that you said you graduated medical school in 2010. Yep. So 12 years out of medical school, already solving cases in New England Journal of Medicine, yet another example of how uh, this country manages to recruit the best and the brightest from around the world. So tell us about these cases. So, well, thank you for, for that kind of much. Uh, so the first case, it, it was truly a delight. And we were at Camille's office and I was presenting patients on, on my rounds. And we get to see this lady from, from Guatemala. She was presenting about a little bit over a week. I think it was like 10 days from her transplant with the rash. She was having fever and a rash. I, and they immediately called us. So um, Dr. Cotton tells me, well, why don't why she, she speak Spanish? So it will be good for for her to be able to communicate easily with you i was like well that actually sounds fantastic so because i didn't get to use a lot of my spanish in muslim so i go and talk with with her and getting a little bit to know why what led to her organ transplant and or her original organ to fail and so she immigrated from from guatemala long long time ago i think it was in the 70s and she was working on a toll booth for most of her adult life here in the U.S. And she started having bundle branch block and then heart failure. Hmm. And nobody really asked her too much about it uh, on how, what happened with her heart, why did it fail. And kind of the question fell through the cracks, kind of in a Swiss cheese issue. And she ended up having a heart transplant and, and the 
difficulties in getting the serology for Chagas disease prior to transplant led to the result actually not coming to the team. And, and so the lady got her transplant and one week later, she started having rash and with fever. So this started sounding fairly, to begin with, like what fever and a rash after one week from transplantation, definitely donor-derived infections or mm -hmm. reactivations of prior infections started ringing a bell pretty seriously. So the first part that we did was, well, this could actually be acute trypanosomiasis or, well, like a reactivation of a prior trypanosomiasis with dissemination. So we got a small tube of blood and we run her, we run the sample to the lab. So we were at the third floor asking the techs to centrifuge the blood and put it in a slit and just put it under the microscope. And so the video that's actually on the webpage is actually my cell phone videotaping how the trypanosomes are moving under the, in the microscope. And you can, wow. and I'm just calling all the fellows like, Hey, you guys got to see this because like this is kind of once in a lifetime experience to actually see. Uh, the trypanosomes going around. A and so we take that, I mean, it was very clear that this trypanosomes, uh, when they stain them, I mean, not only for due to the epidemiology, but how the, the shape and the, the size of the kinetoplast that it was American trypanosomiasis. And then we got the biopsies. Dermatology was immediately called too. We got the biopsies of the skin and then the electron microscopy, you can see the parasite there. So it was kind of like a well-rounded, beautiful fascinating case. Wow. And it was discussed uh, with Dr. Eisen at that time at Northwestern University. And so we, we talked about reactivation of, of trypanosomiasis. It's a little bit more commonly seen in Brazil than, uh, I mean, it's exceedingly rare here in the United States, but it was kind of like a textbook case of this presentation. Good thing is that it was caught fairly um, as soon as it reactivated, the patient had excellent access to care with us. So she was immediately seen and we started therapy and she did great. So crisis avert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so breaking it down. So it, this is fever and rash a week after transplantation. And some of the things that, that I would consider on the differential diagnosis would be, uh, as you mentioned, something donor derived, a donor derived virus, a donor derived syphilis, maybe a drug reaction. Uh, I, I could imagine, particularly if they recently got antithymocyte globulin, maybe that was part of a reaction to that. Maybe if they got started on the Bactrim, then, uh, I could imagine that maybe parvovirus or acute, acute viral infection post transplant. But I would, say that Chagas would not have been on anywhere near the top of my differential. But what is it that made you go in that direction? Is it having seen Chagas in uh, your home country or just being super smart or how did you go in that direction? Part. Not the super smart part. Uh, definitely we considered all of those and most of those testing were sent. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, it was, the rush was fairly... Uh, so it started first on the left arm mm -hmm. and it was flat, but it was not the typical drug eruption ra rash that's slightly more diffuse. It started here, went away, and then happened in the leg. Mm -hmm. And then it moved to another part of the leg. So it was slightly migratory, which was mm -hmm. not traditional mm -hmm. for the other presentations. It was a little late 
for for an ATG reaction uh, certainly can be. But the fact that she never got tested for for Chagas disease was some of the mm-hmm. things that actually triggered that thought. We sent all the other stuff, but the, one of the beauties of when you have disseminated trypanosomiasis is that with a uh, just checking the blood under the microscope, you can see it. Mm-hmm. So really, from when we got the consult to we got the consult at eight a.m., eight thirty, and the blood was under the microscope at ten thirty or eleven a.m. Wow, it was kind of like even the other ones were probably like still within the consideration. It actually the phlebotomy team was going to take more time to get any of the other labs that we could take some blood to take it to the lab for trypanosomiasis. So it was actually oh. faster that route. That was the fastest diagnosis that we could potentially do compared to sending all the, any of the other tests. And this is something I think people should take very seriously because I, I think that there are quite a few people from uh, countries that are endemic for Chagas. And I think some of the teaching is that of, of having somebody that sort of lives in a thatched roof house or has been clearly bitten by the reduvid bug. I, I think many, many, many people, probably the majority of people with Chagas don't give you that history. Yes. So because most of the people will consider that kind of part of the life, you know, coming from, from Peru, a lot of the houses in, in the highlands are, are, you know, not done with concrete and they have wood in their ceilings and that's part of life. So unless you really ask for it, people will not go into that depth because that's, that's standard. And, and so sometimes we have to, to really ask the pertinent question and not just be open with the patient. Just like, you know, tell me a little bit about you because just, they're not going to come up with that. Um, and they will tell you, it's like, oh yeah, these bugs are everywhere. I mean, it's, it's just normal. It's like asking someone who has seen an ant. Yeah. I mean, you look in the textbook, everybody, everybody with Chagas has the Romagna sign, but I, I think that from, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you can even get it from eating contaminated food. It, it, it would be less likely, but you could potentially get it. But the Romagna sign is only it really, if you get bitten really close to the lymphatics that drain in this area, in the mm-hmm. area of the face, but you can get bitten anywhere. So I would say that I've actually never seen a Romagna sign. Um, it's in all the textbooks, so... Yeah, that one poor kid with the Romania sign that's in all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, it's definitely famous now, though. <laughs> yes. So now you're in Indiana. And so I guess I'll uh, start by asking uh, why Indiana? And then the other part is how, uh, what's going on in Indianapolis? Because you seem to attract a lot of talent there. Oh, thank you. So, well, so when I finished my fellowship, I looked for a position in transplant infectious diseases, of course. And at that point, there were several institutions that were looking for transplant infectious disease providers, most of them fairly large institutions with above 500 transplants per year. And, and so that's kind of where we land here in, in IU. We have about 500 to 550 soul organ transplants per year, plus close to 200 stem cell transplants, 70 to 90 of those, depends on the year, being alloys, plus about 20 CAR T cells. So it's a fairly uh, large transplant center. And at that point, we didn't have any transplant infectious diseases provider here, even though that the general infectious diseases crew is, is phenomenal. They cannot dedicate their time fully to the transplant infectious diseases career and, and life. And as a transplant infectious diseases, a lot of it, it's not necessarily only rounding, but you have to go to their selection committees, 
You have to be in the M&Ms. You have to be on the donor calls and multiple other things that for a general infectious diseases, you either uh, don't have the width of the, the span to do it, or you have your own personal career and your own personal goals that cannot be dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. So Indiana University didn't have a transplant infectious disease provider, and they offered me the position here and kind of, well, build the, per- the, the idea of what you want to do and how you envision this transplant cent- infectious disease center to be. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that caught my attention immediately, because then this is the opportunity to actually grow something from the get from the beginning, like from zero and build it up as, as you want. But at the same time, having all this great system and great colleagues that are willing to help you fill in rounds, help you fill in some, some of the tasks, which cannot be done by one single person. So it was both a great opportunity for growth mm-hmm. and also having a team that were willing to sacrifice their own personal time to to help. And, and so I decided to move here and I am really happy that I did. I love the transplant center. I work very close with most of the surgeons. Sadly, some of my time, something happened since 2020 that kind of put all <laughs> our projects. A certain virus. <laughs> yes. So I like invasive fungal infections, and Mm -hmm. suddenly that kind of became part of the back burner of the grow. And so we have to scramble a little bit and try to help mitigate COVID as we could, help them Mm -hmm. navigate when there was pretty much no strategies or available medications for it at the beginning, and what to, I mean, we, we needed still to transplant people. We couldn't let people not get their transplants. And so one of the tasks was like how to decrease the risks of contracting COVID-19 during this period of time. So it was very challenging, but we we got, we made it through. And here we are in 2022, still with COVID around. But, um, you know, our interests now started to come back and the things that were mm-hmm. in the back burner are returning now to, to the main grill. And so one of the things that I would moved towards is invasive fungal infections. And the one that we have plenty, and it's so fascinating, is histoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have it too in Peru, so I got to see some of those cases there, but certainly not to the extent here in Indiana. So sometimes I joke with, with my folks and my friends in, in IT that I have some housekeeping infectious diseases tests when people come with fever and, and CMV and histo are always like, you, you cannot present the patient with me without those results. <laughs> I'll be like, nope, go back to the rounding room and get those results and then come back mm-hmm. to me. Because uh, it's so prevalent. It's so fascinating how it can be around us so much and, and yet had such a varied presentations. So histoplasmosis in Indiana are uh, very well connected because of legendary researchers and clinicians dealing with those. I have to say that we have histoplasmosis in Maryland as well, particularly in uh, people that come from uh, an area just north of Maryland, which is the, the southern part of central Pennsylvania seems to have a lot of histoplasmosis. And then also we have the Del Marva Peninsula, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, which have a very robust chicken uh, poultry industry and maybe histoplasmosis related to that. With that preface, 
I still don't know how to diagnose histoplasmosis in most of my patients. Sometimes, you know, when they slap you on the face and they say, you have hist- I have histoplasmosis, the urine antigen or the serum antigen is positive. But for a lot of the patients that I'm concerned that have histoplasmosis, those antigens are negative. Is it a different situation in a place like Indiana? Well, so it really depends on the population and the clinical presentation of the person. Um, so on most of our patients with solid organ transplant that come with disseminated disease, we have a positive antigen. Sure. Now, that being said, that is kind of like the end side of the spectrum where they have disseminated disease, which you have your positive testing in, in higher than 95% of the population. But as, as you go down to people that only have pulmonary disease mm-hmm. uh, without any other presentation, then then your sensitivity starts dropping. And if you go to the general population, that starts dropping even further. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes it can be challenging. In the adult population, we rely very heavily on, on the urine antigen and, and serum antigen whatsoever for the diagnosis. But I think there's a huge gap that we need to fill, which is a little bit more on the more not only molecular techniques like carriers, for example, that can detect through whole genome sequencing or next generation sequencing, but also PCRs, but also in immunological testings, either through egress, as I know, for example, Dr. Morris doing at your institution of Hopkins, but also cytokine release assays as one of the ones that we want to develop with Vista and, and Dr. Joe Lee, who has feared the testing on, on histoplasmosis for a long, long period. Sorry, not Kira Moore. No, Dr. Moore. Yeah, she's doing yeah. the, yeah. She's doing the uh, AGRA for, for histoplasmosis. And she recently published, I think a couple months ago about it, a very nice test that she performed with one of her fellows that's currently on um, Vanderbilt, I think. So the, the other point is, you know, I think that cytokine release assays may have an important role for, for diagnosing histoplasmosis. But I think that the other pivotal part of histoplasmosis is how to manage it. Because mm-hmm. um, I think, or this is at least my, my personal view and my personal opinion is that we have not moved in that field in quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And we're still kind of the amphobie followed by itraconazole for X amount of time. And ensure that probably will be remain the case for a long period of time. The X amount of time is the part that's mm-hmm. how How long do we need to do amphoterazine B? Sure. Does it have to be two weeks? Can it be one week in patients that are uh, a little bit milder? Probably, the answer is yes. But then can we even push the envelope further like Dr. Bilwer has done for cryptococcus? Cryptococcal meningitis. Fotericin uh, B concentrates greatly in, re- in the reticular endothelial system and it remains within the in there for weeks. So it's not necessarily that advantageous to do two weeks of IV amphotericin versus one single high dose, as has been seen on their study for cryptococcal meningitis. So do we need to Think about something like that for, for histoplasmosis. Can that be done? Or perhaps a cochleated oral version of aflatericin B. Even better. Even better. And then followed by itraconazole or uh, any other um, higher generation azole like isobuconazole or, or posiconazole and perhaps the newer um, that are coming to the market, including opalconazole and, and others. But then the point comes down to in our immunocompromised patients, we've reduced the immunosuppression, right? After 
they have their invasive fungal infection. And then some of, there will be some degree of immune recovery on them. So do we need to do one year of therapy on all of them? Can some of them receive six months? Can some of them receive eight months? So that's where I think we need to move forward in, in research. Perhaps the new immunological testing, including IGRS or CRAs, can allow us to detect people that actually have plentiful immune response to histoplasmosis. And perhaps in them, we can think about shortening the therapy. And that is kind of thinking about how CMV modern therapies moving towards, right? There's this small study from the University of Health Network in Toronto where they completed therapy for CMV and mm-hmm. at the completion of CMV, they checked the CMV quantiferum and the patients that have positive responses, they won't uh, reactivate versus the ones that have negative responses, they won't reactivate. So kind of emulating something like that, having a little bit more tailored therapy, because I think that that is the future of medicine not one set amount of therapy, but actually what's tailored towards your patient. Mm-hmm. The only way to tailor something is having data to input. And that's where this immunological test is, I think, may be pivotal. Sure. And I think this brings us full circle to where you started with your interest, which is that interaction, conversation, sometimes battle, sometimes synergy, sometimes antagonism between the cells of the immune system and the cells of the invading pathogen. Absolutely. And that really brings us back to that whole array of disease, right? Like the same uh, uh, Cassidy-Bowell graph. So one side of the the spectrum, you can have disseminated disease and the whole other side of the spectrum, you have fibrosin mediastinitis with the big chunk of us probably having inhaled pounds of histoplasmosis without having any issues. Yeah, no, it, 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 you bring that up. So uh, years ago, pivotal event in my life was I was at one of the uh, big ID slash microbiology conferences, and I walked into a uh, session that kind of seemed interesting, but uh, it, it really changed my life. It was by Lisanne Porofsky, who, who had been a uh, uh, collaborator with Arturo Casadevall on this very issue. And up until that point, I had thought of microbes as as viruses, bacteria, gram-positive, gram-negative, fungi, parasites. And instead, she broke it down as to the kind of interaction that the immune system has with the organism and, and that uh, with the various curves uh, that, that you mentioned, the parabolas. And, and that was uh, completely eye-opening for me and has changed the way I look at it. And, and, and with HTLV and HIV, I think that it's, it's fascinating in that sometimes they're mirror images of each other. In HIV, 95% or more of the people will have symptomatic disease and an immune uh, compromise, whereas you have the elite controllers on the extreme. And then with HTLV, in some ways, it's the opposite. I know it's very simplistic what I just said, but it is a testament to the difference between how the immune system and the virus in those situations interact. Yeah, exactly. So I hope that I can, uh, keep on going with my passion for infectious diseases and and mixing it with my immunology passion too. So I think that's the beauty of transplant infectious diseases. That's where the intersect is. Okay. Now, do you have any uh, favorites uh, as we are uh, getting into the end of the uh, World Cup? Is it going to be Brazil like everybody thinks, Argentina, maybe Croatia? Well, so I can... I can 
say who I think it's going to end up in the finals, but I can say, tell you also who do I want to end up in the finals. <laughs> yes, we went both. Yeah. So let's start with who I think that it will end up in the finals. I think France and Brazil are probably going to be in the finals. Brazil has a little bit more resources in terms of, on my, my opinion, of course, in terms of players. And, but I think France has had a little bit easier ride through the, throughout the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're a little bit more structured in, in their team strategy. So I think it will be a tight game. And the prior two workouts that they have faced, actually, Brazil was probably the same conversation that we're having right now. Brazil and France beat them twice. So I wouldn't be surprised if this would be the, the thrice that will happen. Being from South America, I would prefer that to not happen. But <laughs> sometimes life doesn't play that way. Now, on the other hand, what I would like to see would be an Argentina-England finals. Oh, once again, reliving 1965, I believe. <laughs> yeah, and uh, being won by Argentina without a hand goal, but... Without a hand goal. <laughs> but still, that, I think that would be a beautiful game because it would be so passionate and so so entertaining because that's really what I think about soccer. It's passion, it's fun, it is skills, it's strategy. But overall, it's kind of like bringing everyone together to, you know, see something fun. So Now, there is a team, a soccer team from, or a football team from Lima, which is, is I believe, everybody's favorite team in uh, Lima. And I promised uh, Lalo, uh, Dr. Kachai in uh, UCSD, that if he enrolls a patient in a study we're doing, that I would buy and wear and photograph myself with the uh, the team and a uh, t-shirt and and I did and then I walked around and people started Peruvian people came out of the woodwork starting to talk to me about the team and I had to explain to them that I'm just a Jewish guy who doesn't really speak very much Spanish <laughs> beyond Duolingo. Yeah, there's there's two large teams in Lima. One it's uh Universitario, which is uh we call it La U. Uh, it's a university it used to be on the university team. Now it's just that's the name of the team. It wears a um beige jersey with a red logo that's a U. And the second team is the one that has a white and black striped jersey called Alianza, which has, uh, it's funny because we said like they they have terrible luck. So like if you're ever going, if you ever see, we call it like a, it's like a um, something bad, ominous going to happen if you're wearing that jersey. (laughs) So like if you see like that someone, what team Loses. It's like, oh, there was someone wearing that jersey. <laughs> oh, I see. So I was but, wearing that jersey. <laughs> so those are the eternal rivals in in Lima, and it's awesome to see them. We call them the Clasico, just as Barcelona and, and Madrid in a far smaller scale. But <laughs> um, but yeah, it, those are the two teams that we love in, in Peru. Now, there's many wonderful things about Peru, but one of the most wonderful things about Peru is the cooking and the food. I had never been to a place that was more serious about their food than there. People think of France and Italy, and clearly they have fantastic food, but there is nothing that compares to the skill of the Peruvian cooks. Yes, we actually have uh, two of the best restaurants in the world are in Lima. The top 10 are in Lima. But those are just the ones that are highly recognized. But you can go everywhere and just eat something amazing. 
And we even have like food festivals and like people go and travel just for that, which I love. Or just stop in a bus station and you're going to see like a little cart on the side just with a little grill uh, giving you some anticuchos. And it's just a, a great thing. It's a great thing. So uh, I'm not going to serve as the Peruvian minister of tourism, but I will say that if you want to see uh, tremendous condors, you can see that in uh, Colca Canyon. And condor is one of those words that comes to us from Quechuan, as does puma. And if you want to see uh, tremendous architecture in uh, Cusco, you can see the the amazing work that were done by the uh, the Incan craftsmen. And then right next to it, there's some work that is not as tremendous done by the Spanish craftsmen. And when you see the, the comparison of the brickwork, it's it's really quite remarkable how skilled the Incan were. And then uh, just so many wonderful things to do and see in Peru. I went with my uh, son and he uh, keeps asking, when can we go back to Peru? I hope soon. It's open now. COVID doesn't exist anymore, right? Uh, It's an interesting thing that you say about uh, COVID. It's really uh, an an example of how the immune system and the virus interacts. I think the the interaction between the current viral strands and the immune system of most people is one that is a much healthier interaction than we had in the past. However, as we know, working in the field of transplant and oncology, infectious disease, still a uh, issue, not as huge as it was a couple of years ago, but still a big issue for our patients with cases of acute COVID and also uh, increasingly recognized the uh, syndrome of of persistent or smoldering COVID where people can be uh, contagious for many, many, many days and then also sometimes end up in the hospital again and again because their uh, immune system has not been able to control the virus as effectively as somebody with an intact immune system. Certainly, certainly. Well, thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to additional conversations in the future when you uh, get your uh, fungal research career back and working because I think there's tons of work to do on many fungi and an exciting time for diagnostics and treatments of histoplasmosis coming up. So thanks again. Oh, thank you for the invite. This has been wonderful. (laughs) Great. Take care. Bye. Bye.